Welcome to the Head, the Heart, and the Briefcase podcast, where we take constantly evolving workplace psychology research and translate it into easy to understand bites leaders like you can use in your everyday life. I'm Natalie Grogan. And I'm Alexandra Hart. This week, we're talking about well-being. Well-being is a word that pops up a lot in workplace psychology research, so we're going to dive into what that means. You know, it's really fitting that we're talking about wellness today on this episode, given the high pollen counts and how crazy, like just like the physical wellness is down here in Charleston, South Carolina, where we're recording. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, we were just talking about brain fog and the things that come along with that. And um, it really does impact your ability to work. (laughs) Well, it does. And then Natalie, you were just talking about, there's this like graphic that's been going around of just like this yellow fog. And we like, we jokingly call it the great pollinating, but it's just like this yellow fog that's just like looming over. Did you see the pictures from Myrtle Beach? No. Not doctored, like straight up. These pictures from Myrtle Beach, the ocean is actually yellow, like green. Like there is pollen on top of the ocean. Like at least we have Isle of Palms and Sullivan's where like it's still polleny. But like you can get some fresher air, not at Myrtle Beach. Wow, I I just looked it up. That is wild. <laughs> it's awful. Yeah. It also says this article is talking about um, whether or not pollen uh, causes damage to your car. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, considering it looks like it's snowing pollen outside and there's like, that's what gets me is when we first moved down here, everybody taught like, oh, get ready for the pine pollen. And I was like, guys, I've lived in the South. I've lived in the Midwest, like allergy. Like I, I know pollen, trust me. I did not know pollen. Like it literally snows clumps of pollen. Like it's just wild. And then your car just has like an inch of pollen on it. And it's just so if, if we sound like weird today, it's because we're allergic. <laughs> yeah. Last week I took my car for a car wash and my, my sister was coming to town. I was like, I'll clean everything up and whatever. And by the time I got home from the car wash, it had a layer of pollen on it again. So useless. Josh went and got my car washed. He did the outside, the inside, like he detailed the whole thing while I was at work and came and picked me up. And he was like, check out how awesome the car looks. And he was so proud, like rightfully so. It looked better than when we bought it. And then not like we got home. It wasn't even like 30 minutes later. We got home and it was just yellow. And he was so, he's like, dang it, come on. Like I didn't even get one day out of all this hard work. No, it's oh, worth just hosing but... it down, I guess, rather than going to the car wash. <laughs> Honestly, it rained yesterday. And I was like, that counts. It rinsed pollen off. Well, obviously this whole pollen situation, you know, we're talking about how it's um, impacting our ability to think and kind of get things done. So that certainly has an impact on um, the workplace and how we get work done and, um, you know, our ability to be physically healthy at work, um, which leads us into kind of the types of well-being, one of which is physical well-being. Alex, I did want to get your thoughts on what well-being means to you before we dive into all the technical stuff. I think for me, well-being is kind of a sum as how you are as a person. Like you're, we've been talking about emotional intelligence and, and that kind of thing, right? So that's a factor into it. But I think it is your physical health, your mental health your surroundings and your relationship with your surroundings, the health of your relationships. I think well-being is kind of an all-encompassing term that has a lot of different factors that come into play. Yeah, I agree with you. And there's a lot of overlap in terms of what well-being is and wellness. And um, one of the articles that I was looking at um, was talking about uh, the differences and the similarities. And uh, to them, the similarities were that it's a, to your point, multidimensional, dynamic, subjective, and personal. 
I think you actually kind of said all of those things. <laughs> you definitely didn't read the same thing I did. That's um, scientific. That's so scientific. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that go into it. I think it's more than just your physical and mental health, which is what a lot of people, when they think, oh, my, my well-being or my wellness, they kind of use the terms interchangeably. So I'm glad we're going to dive in and distinguish the two today. But it's like, oh, it's my physical health and my mental health. And like, be, it just kind of stops there. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to expand on that and talk about, hey, no, it's actually so much more than that. Yeah. And the interesting part is there's some overlap, right? They definitely work together. Both are really dynamic. Um, they're both very subjective and personal and kind of influenced by your historical, cultural context, things like that. Um wellness is really about doing. So that's taking action and making choices that benefit your health and overall well-being and is more focused on the physical dimension of things, whereas well-being is how you perceive your state of being. So that's more focused on the mental and emotional dimension of things. And that's really worth noting uh, because we've talked about this before. And you have, when you talk about types of well-being, of it feels like mental well-being and emotional well-being should be on that list of types, but really that's the underlying current across all of the different types of well-being. So there's not a specific category for that. It's really all related to the mental um, and emotional. So when you're talking about the different types of well-being and the different categories that all feed up into your mental and emotional well-being, walk us through what those those are. There's definitely debate out there on how many types of well-being there are, but uh, in examining everybody's perspective, I boiled it down to the five most common, and those are physical, financial, career, social, and community. And we'll go through each one of them individually uh, because there's some very interesting nuances. Um, I have definitions from Gallup, which I can't wait to share with you, Alex, because I think you'll semi-agree with some and very much disagree with others. Um, and then there's also this question of, uh, since we're talking about well-being specifically at work, what are the employees' expectations from their employers in terms of providing well-being for them, if that's even a grammatically correct phrase, the what should be the employer's responsibility in contributing to well-being or how much responsibility should the employer take for a person's sense of well-being? I think that part of the conversation is really going to surprise a lot of people. Yeah. Um, there's some areas that I definitely think employers are responsible, um, but you and I are both big proponents of personal responsibility. So that will be an interesting part of the conversation for sure. I just want to make a note here as we go through the types of well being that well being and wellness are related, but not in the self care way that wellness is used today, kind of in social culture, um, particularly as it relates to work, other than detachment from work during non work time. That is definitely self care and well being and contributes to um, wellness. So just keep that in mind as we go through these different types of well-being. So the first one I mentioned is physical well-being. And the definition from Gallup is you have the energy to get things done. Now, I'm interested in your perspective on that, Alex, the, the Gallup definition, because that's not exactly how I take it. I'm trying to wrap my head around that and see if there is a way that that could be understood that is not the initial jump out at you understanding? Yeah, because for me, I think of it more as physical safety rather than having energy. I actually really like Gallup in general. So I'm interested, like starting off with this one is physical and this one, it has me being like, wait a second, Gallup, are you about to do us dirty here? Yeah, well, but then they're all, they're all a little weird. <laughs> So this is Gallup's definitions of well-being. You have physical, you have the energy to get things done. I can understand where they're coming from with that. I think it's so much more than energy because, well, like when it, when it relates to well-being, right, your physical well-being, are you capable physically of accomplishing your tasks day to day? 
especially as it relates to the workplace. I wouldn't necessarily have picked the word energy per se, but I understand where they're coming from. I'm with you though. Yeah. When I think of well-being from a physical sense in the workplace specifically, because that's the context that we're looking at, I think safety, I think OSHA, exactly what you just said. I think, is my physical person safe? Like we talked before when we were planning for this episode about there have been places that people work where you are actually trained. Everybody's trained on things like active shooter situations, right? But then there's other places where there is higher risk because of the nature of the work being done for protesting, for extreme events or things like that happening where your physical safety outside of OSHA, outside of the general workplace is a little bit more at risk or things like, like linemen, they have very dangerous jobs. Like I think of like their physical well-being is so much more than just energy and so much more than OSHA. There's so much, so much else that goes into it. Right. Yeah. I think that's probably the important distinction now that I have considered it a little bit more is that if I was thinking about my personal well-being outside of work, overall well-being, maybe having the energy to get things done would be more appropriate. But when I think about the workplace, I definitely think about physical safety. And, you know, in addition to the things that you mentioned, you know, um, not getting hurt, OSHA rules, you know, they're the chemical hazardous materials management um, trainings. But, um, there's also ergonomics. Um, it's not necessarily, well, yeah, there's also ergonomics, you know, how you structurally sit at your desk and what resources you have access to, to make sure that you are not getting spinal injuries and, um, muscular pain and things like that. That's actually a really good point. I'm so glad you brought that up because that ergonomics have played a huge role in positions I've had, not just of like companies are being very intentional with ergonomics. But when I was at Staples, we had regular training with manufacturer reps to understand the impacts and of ergonomics and prioritizing it and the difference between when you prioritize it and when it's just something that falls by the wayside. And an actual part of our jobs at the time as the account managers and as the strategic sales leaders for our territories was to go into our customers and into our clients and then facilitate these ergonomic trainings. In a way, we were responsible for the education and enablement of our clients to have an ergonomic friendly workplace. That's everything from your office chair to your keyboard to the, like we even had to go through a training of being able to appropriately measure, which I'm telling you right now, I could not do this today because it's been years and I don't remember, but we had to go through trainings of being able to go into an office setting, whether it's in a hospital, a high rise, doesn't matter, a tire shop down the road. And we had to be able to measure the angle and the tilt of your head with the monitor of which direction is your neck looking when you're looking at the monitor? Are you in violation of ergonomic policies or are you like spot on with this? Like the, the angles of your elbows, like the best thing I can compare it to is when you learn to drive a car and you know how they're like, okay, your knees should be slightly bent, but not like fully cramped in your face and they shouldn't be totally extended. Or like when you're adjusting a bike seat or like at spin or something like that, when they're okay, well, here's how we have to do that. We had to go into our clients and do those same things and then give them the resources and the tools to meet the gap there. Yeah, that is, uh, there's a lot that goes into the ergonomic stuff. And, uh, you know, as I stand at my standing desk today, I think of when I went through training, gosh, it must have been 12 years ago. Um, about how your elbows are supposed to be at 90 degrees. And actually mine are a little low right now, but that's because my camera angle is high. <laughs> but yeah, I think of that stuff too. So whoever did that training for me back in BWR, if you hear this, uh, know that I still think of you and <laughs> remember what we were taught. You do bring up a good point. It's the physical safety. It's the OSHA protection. It's like you said, the chemical safety, but it's also like things we take for granted, like having clean air or accessible water in the workplace, right? 
Um, but it's also, like you said, ergonomics. That's a really good point. Yeah. And one thing that when you and I were working together in the um, kind of transportation industry and doing the human con uh, capital consulting uh, with some companies on that side, one thing that uh, I learned from using the personality assessments and related to physical safety is that there are certain personalities that are not that are not inherently wired to be the safest on the floor or in the driver's seat at a trucking company. So um, when we look at the predictive index, we look at the formality factor because oftentimes we find that companies that are having a lot of safety violations or they're having a lot of people pulled over or um, issues with 18-wheeler trucks, you know, there are a million things that can go wrong there, is that the workers that are having those problems are lower in formality. And that doesn't mean that they can't turn it up to do that job better, but that needs to be something that maybe they're measured against so that it's top of mind for them to be paying attention to those sort of things all the time. So, so that just goes to show that the physical safety goes much further than just being comfortable going into work and not fearing for your safety, to having an ergonomic desk, to OSHA rules and things like that. It goes into how a person thinks and what drives them and the way that they um, naturally behave. Well, it, it does. And then it poses the question of where is that line between where does the burden of responsibility shift from the employer to the employee and then vice versa? Where Where is that line on that? Especially when you take into account everything you just said, that it's psyche and there's so much more involved in it than just I have a, a clean desk to work at. Yeah, it's important for employee employee. It's important for employers to understand these things about the people that work for them. And they can do that with some tools like the predictive index that we use. However, you know, the person needs to develop some self-awareness also because ultimately it's them making the mistakes. So there has to be some onus on them as to, you know, you got your CDL license. You should know to check all of these 126 things or whatever it is you have to. Um, it's a lot. I know it's a lot. But, um, or you've worked in this warehouse or warehouse jobs for so long, you have been trained in all the safety rules. It's up to you to follow through on them. Even if you are that lower formality person, it just, you know, if, if you are unable to do that, then it means you're probably not in the right role for your own personality. And there are some companies who do an incredible job at this. Um, when I worked for crown equipment, it's in the, the like forklifts and intra logistics warehousing category. When I worked at one of the manufacturing plants and sourcing, I sat behind a desk. I met with suppliers and vendors, but any time, like there was um, the water cooler, <laughs> it was actually out on the manufacturing floor. So anytime I would need to fill up my water bottle to go sit at my desk, the safety team did such a great job of education. They're like, hey, we know it's super inconvenient, but you need to change into your steel-toed shoes. You need to put your safety glasses on. And at certain times, if there was different levels of production or different construction or something like that going on, you need to have your hard hat on. Even if you are just walking 10 feet right here, you're not around any production, you're not around anything. You, just to get here, you need to do all of that for safety. And they were so strict. And I appreciated it. It was annoying sometimes, but... I appreciated it. But then there's other people who work at other warehouses, just to stick with the warehouse example, that I have friends who fingers have gotten cut off because there's no like safety governance. There's no physical safety concern. It's the onus is so much on the employee that they're like, oh, if you get hurt, that's on you for not paying attention. Not, oh yeah, we should get this guard for this saw or this laser, or whatever, just making examples up. And so, like we said, that kind of that line of the burden of responsibility, there's people who do it very well. And there's people who say, nope, employees, you're humans, you're adults, you should be intelligent enough to protect your own safety. Yeah. I don't think that probably fares too well for them if they're workman's comp claims, putting the onus back on the employee. That's true. But that is, that is a very real issue in a lot of blue collar jobs and a lot of blue collar environments. Um, even union environments, like at the post office, for example, there's a myriad of physical well-being violations, if you will, 
and that's government. I mean, so it's there, it's all, it's so much more widespread than we would like to think it was, which is super disappointing, but that's also why we're having this conversation is to bring awareness to it, especially for those who take it for granted. Yeah. Well, the smart thing to do is obviously what Crown did because you're just more so than even worrying about the person's safety every time they go into the warehouse, you're making everyone create the habits so that it becomes automatic. Absolutely. That's part of the goal, right? We want people to take responsibility on all sides of the equation where their responsibility is due. Yes, I agree. And that's definitely one of the takeaways, I think, from the physical side is create good habits, safety habits for your people, even if it's uncomfortable at first. Yeah, especially when you have a lot of freedom and then you start putting on physical well-being things like ergonomic stuff, which that's not really going to be hated, but safety measures, it is a little tricky at first, but it's worth it. Yeah, I think some people react to that as like, don't treat me like a baby, but it's it's for the good of everybody and will definitely help prevent um, safety issues in the future. <laughs> Let's move on to financial well-being. And this, this is one that employers definitely play a part in and definitely should not play a part in in other regards. So Gallup's definition is you manage your money well. I think that's reasonable for financial. I agree. I think a lot of people would say, oh no, financial well-being is you have enough money, but there's never enough money. It's about how you manage it. So yeah, I think that's a reasonable summary, emphasis on summary. Yeah. So if we think about the employer's contribution to you managing your money well, the onus is still on you to manage it well. But one of the things that I really love, the idea of at least, and the companies that have implemented it, is really supporting financial literacy and having not just 401ks where somebody comes in and gives an overview of the program and tells you how much you can put away and what your take-home pay will be, but really teaching people how to manage their money, how to budget, how to invest um, as much as it might seem like second nature to some people. Most people really don't have a budget. And if you see the statistics on people living paycheck to paycheck today, that really doesn't need to be that way, or at least we hope that it, that can change. So obviously your job contributes to your financial well-being in that they give you a paycheck, but there's also a lot, in my opinion, that employers can do to uh, improve on the financial well-being of people. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from with all of that. I think it's important to distinguish that the employers, and we're going to hit employer-employee responsibility in a minute, but for this one, because it is such a touchy subject, I don't have any data in front of me. So I'm just going to say the people that I have talked to in my sphere of influence, Natalie, you might have this statistic, maybe not. Generally, people don't feel like they are paid what they deserve, largely speaking. It's a very small portion of the population who feels, yeah, I make a good salary that is equitable to what I should be making. And I'm content in my financial situation with my position. I just, I think there's a lot to unpack around financial well-being. And I agree with you that it is amazing when employers offer financial literacy opportunities, whether it's classes, whether it's workshops. I think that's incredible because we've talked before about this, Natalie, how that is a huge gap in the American education system of people aren't taught basic things like how to manage your money. That's not something that you learn in high school. And we this is part of a bigger conversation, but here in the US, our education system is geared towards making people really, really good employees, not geared towards making people really, really good employers. And so having that knowledge and that understanding of that financial well-being and everything that goes into that, I think that might be one of the places where there is one of the largest gaps in expectation and reality, maybe on both sides. Yeah, I agree. And the impact of financial well-being is so enormous because it physical and financial together are the two bottom uh, parts of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Those are the two that contribute 
it's not financial, but it's the ability to eat, sleep, et cetera, et cetera. Um, financial contributes to the second level, like having housing over your head and being able to live. So when you talk about financial well-being, it really hits people deeply because it impacts every other area of their life. Now, there's certainly a proliferation of like overconsumption. And I think that's sometimes why the are my generation, younger generations uh, tend to think that they don't, they aren't able to get ahead in life, but that's because we're marketed to constantly. And I'll say even myself, I buy a ton of things that I shouldn't buy, but we don't even think about it like our parents used to. So um, it's really interesting how it's changed, but it still is the number one thing that impacts a person's, you know, ability to live their life with the quality that they would like to. Well, and there's also a different level of appreciation because if you think about it historically, we went from the Great Depression to coming out of that to war, to war, to war, and then maybe war again, if I remember correctly. And then we all, the millennial generation is off the top of my head, like one of the first generations to grow up in a time of general peace. And I want to make an asterisk there. I'm not saying we've been at peace the entire last 30, 40 years, obviously not with terrible things like 9-11 and Desert Storm and all of those types of things. But as far as, as far as coming from nothing and having that type of need and want we experienced the Great Recession as youths, as Schmidt would say, youths. Um, but <sighs> we've never really been in a position to want for our basic needs, that first level of the pyramid. Not everyone, but generally speaking. And so then we have a different level of appreciation and a different level of expectation. So the cal and where I'm getting at with this is the caliber of life that we are expecting to live at earlier on in life, and there's a lot more that goes into this, is much higher than the caliber of life that maybe our parents or our grandparents expected. There's almost this sense of like, we have to pay our dues. This is how the, this is how the cycle of life works, right? We're broke for a while, then we get a decent house, then we get a really nice house, then we retire, right? Whereas now the younger generations are like, wait, why would I wait until I retire to do these things? Why not do them now? And so they're trying to figure out where that balance falls and where that, that lies is kind of my thoughts on everything you just said, if that makes sense. Yeah. I saw some guy on a, po- a young kid. He's probably a YouTube influencer or something. I'm really bad by the way, when it comes to influencers on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, I don't know any of their names. So excuse me for that, but this kind of made its way around the internet. And this guy was saying, well, if you, uh, don't own a Lamborghini by the time you're 21. What are you doing with your life? I was like, well, what kind of message is that to put out there? And that just speaks to the, you know, expectations these days. And I know that's an outlier for sure, but that's what's being fed to people is that you're kind of a loser if you don't buy all these things or have all these things. And that's interesting as well, because that also brings into the component of the role that social media plays because we've taught we've said this before we were not meant to see how the entire world lives like as humans that's such a burden on our brains and that completely changes the way we operate and view the world when we have this constant comparison so then you see people who are living these lives that historically it was like oh no only the movie stars live like that you know and now it's like oh no this is very common who are you to not be living this way But then it also perpetuates this cycle of debt and this cycle of poor financial management because you're trying to keep up versus trying to live the life that's right in front of you and make the most of that life. Yeah, I think there's underlying, if we talked about social media, underlying issues that relate to each of these types of well-being because there are too much social media can cause issues with your physical well-being and your physical health, trying to be like other people, financials, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. Um, career, which is our next one, you know, you're comparing yourself to where other people are or aspiring to be things like an influencer rather than pursuing, you know, a contribution back to 
society, although some influencers are contributing back to society, but there's definitely an impact that social media has on well-being as a whole and in each of these categories. Just this one last thought, for me at least, on the financial component of well-being or the financial well-being is there is a quote from someone somewhere, or lots of people have probably said this, that one of the biggest enemies of contentment and like true joy and happiness in life is comparison. And so looking at other people and then where I'm going with this is that comparison and everything we're talking about right here. Let's say we're doing that from the employee's perspective. Then now they're looking at their employer as the source of the issue. Cause we talk about the onus is on the employee to an extent but it's so much easier to point the finger and say, oh, well, if they would just pay me more, then I could do this. If they wouldn't, if the government wouldn't take so much out in taxes, then I could just do this, which like, don't disagree, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> but always pointing the finger as to like, here's why my financial well-being is so poor. And it's never just being content with what you have. Well, I think that there's, I know that there is a big difference in how people perceive their problems and it's either intrinsic it comes from me i'm the how does it go hey it's me i'm the problem it's me <laughs> the taylor swift song the anti-hero um yeah so there's that intrinsic i'm the problem it's me and then there's the extrinsic well I don't have enough because they're not giving me enough. And it's really thinking about that locus of control. Who controls this? If you don't feel like you're getting paid enough, it's up to you to change that situation, to get another job, get a second job, ask for more money. You know, there are a lot of different ways to do it. And some people are just inherently underpaid, um, but there's still always something that you can do about it. And I, when I hear people argue that there oftentimes isn't, I have to disagree at most levels with that. What do you mean? Isn't, isn't what? Isn't something they can do about it. If there isn't something, if they oh. don't believe that there is something they can do about it. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I 100% agree with you on that. It's like, there's, it's like that old saying of, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it's going to fail every time. If you are busting your butt working at a minimum wage job, and you're looking at your employer saying, why can't I buy that Lamborghini that so-and-so says I should be able to buy now, then you're totally judging this. You're looking at the situation as you, you said intrinsic and extrinsic. I've always heard the less scientific version, which is becoming a theme on this podcast. Natalie has the scientific version. Alex has the country bumpkin version. Um, but the victim versus victor mentality that we've talked about before of I'm the victim of this circumstance. I'm not paid enough. Woe is me that extrinsic, right? Versus the intrinsic of this situation is unfortunate, but I'm going to do everything I can to make it better. I'm going to talk to my boss about a raise. I'm going to pick up more hours. I'm going to talk about a different bonus structure. I'm going to pursue a different career path that more aligns with my goals in life. Did I explain that correctly? Yes, you did. That was good. There's something else that I thought of when you were saying that is that there is another side to the financial well-being part. And this happened to somebody I know recently with a lot of tech companies doing layoffs and planning for economic downturn. Uh, this person works for one that had layoffs uh, fairly recently. They also had a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the last few years. So it's expected that they would have some layoffs regardless of economic downturn but now they're really taking it to the next level. So they had an all hands meeting a couple of weeks ago and it was a big kumbaya session and, you know, promoting everybody, making everybody feel good. It's the newish CEO. And in the last five minutes of this meeting, the CEO started going down this path of, Hey, I just want you to know, you know, we understand that there are, you know, the prices have increased. It's expensive out there. We're all in this together, blah, 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 blah. So that in itself was kind of tone deaf when you're talking about somebody who makes 700 grand a year and speaking to their entire company. But then the follow-up to that was, and you're not getting your annual merit increase this year, which is built into their salary plan. It's too 2% a year is the minimum, which is dumb to begin with, if you ask me. 
Like don't build it into the salary plan. So then you can take it away. I feel like you have to commit to it if you build it in there, but they said um, they're not getting their AMI increase and they're, they're also done with promotions for the year. And that was the end of February. So you can imagine that went over like a lead balloon. Now question is that, is there a fiscal year? Does that like end in March or April or is there fiscal year? Like they're done for the calendar year. Well, they're done for the calendar year with the promotions and the merit increases. I don't know about their, wow. like what their fiscal year is, but. I didn't know if like when yeah. they said that they meant fiscal year, but they meant, ca- wow, there's so much wrong with that. Well, so this person in particular has been at the company for several years in the same role with the same title. She was working with her boss's boss on a uh, promotion to a higher level role with more responsibility because everybody sees that she should be having more responsibility and it doesn't take her a lot of effort to do this current job. So like she's looking for more of a challenge. So the boss's boss got laid off, um, derailing her plans for whatever's next. She has no idea if that you know, role is even open, but they also said promotions are done for the year. So does that count if it's a role that's open to the outside world. I mean, it just leaves so many open or so much open-ended in both her financial security and career security and development. Wow. I have a couple thoughts on that. When you said the boss was like, I'm, I'm right here with you. I get it. While he's making 700 plus a year. That immediately brings to mind how during COVID, all of the celebrities were like, which to each their own, everybody's struggle for them is hard. It doesn't matter if you're in a McMansion or if you're in a shack by the beach, the things that are hard to you are hard and that's valid. But when you have all these celebrities saying, we're with you, this is um, so hard. Like we're in this together doing that rendition of imagine that was just a whole thing. Um, then you have people who are like, no, I literally can't pay the bills because my manufacturing plant, and I know I keep going to blue collar this episode. I'm not really sure why, but I do. But you have people who don't relate to that because these celebrities and their McMansions have all of the resources that they need and they're like equipped to survive this. Meanwhile, other people are like, wait, I'm literally not allowed to go to the grocery store except for during these hours kind of thing. That's what that reminds me of is just how you have to be careful of saying, I get it, or I'm with you. And there's other ways to express that. So just general leadership tip. Nancy Pelosi having a drawer full of Jenny's ice creams that are what, like $12 each when other people couldn't put food on the table because they were already living paycheck to paycheck. And to your point, their manufacturing plant closed down. So, you know, and with five kids to feed. So there's, yes, everybody's hard is valid for them, but it's not necessarily the same. Yeah. I guess the the moral of that is don't, it's okay. If you don't understand somebody else's hard, you don't have to just acknowledge they're hard but not like putting yourself in there with them. Like we got this together. So again, just a little general leadership tidbit that I feel like is a good thing to glean from what you just said. You also said that he did this, he or she did this and followed it up with, there's no more pay increase and there's no more opportunities with it. Cause you said there's no more promotions the way to hear that, that I take is we're not paying you more and we're giving you no opportunity to earn more. So where you're at is where you're at and you are stuck for the rest of the year, unless you go to a different company. Yes. And this is a good segue into the career well-being because the general consensus among the team after that meeting was infuriated, of course. Um, but they felt that the company is relying on the fact that there are massive layoffs in the tech industry so that people will not leave their company. So they're basically using that as leverage to screw people over because they have nowhere oh, else to go. That's so shady. That's so shady. I mean, that's the sentiment. I didn't say who the company was, so I can't get in trouble for this, but that is the employee sentiment. And whether that's with the intention or not, it doesn't really matter because that's how employees are taking it. And the other kicker is one of the other executives um, sent out a survey because obviously 
things were heated afterward. And one of the other executives kind of like ripped him a new one because I guess they didn't really want the feedback or didn't want to solicit the feedback because then you have to do something about it. Mm. Yeah. Not a great situation. (laughs) Well, in that, I mean, so you're, like you said, segueing into career well-being, you're messing with people's financial well-being, which then can impact their physical well-being outside of the workplace. And then not only that, but you're also completely squashing any career potential for the foreseeable future. Because let's be honest, if you're like the way I would think about that, not knowing, like Natalie hasn't even told me who the company is and that's fine. I don't want to know. I haven't asked. But thinking about that from my perspective, you tell me your salary's frozen. There's no advancement opportunities until the end of the year. That is such a false hope because it's not like the economy is going to be better at the end of the year than it is right now. I mean, they're preparing for economic downturn. So really it's leading people down a path where there's a fake light, like you get to the light at the end of the tunnel only to realize it's a flashlight that's almost out of batteries and you're not any farther along than you were before. Yeah. And, you know, I'm torn between what I think people should do because I'm a businesswoman. I understand the business side of things. I understand the finances and the nuts and bolts and how all of that stuff works. And I do respect the difficult decisions that people have to make, you know, in high level roles during times like this. Absolutely. Um, I would Absolutely. Say, yeah. And, I, but what I'm torn about is the, you know, if you're going to do that to somebody, you better be giving them a lot of development opportunities during that time, at least to get better at what they're doing. So, or upskill in some way, um, you have to be providing some value to them, in my opinion, to make up for that. However, that also costs money and, it could be perceived by the employees as well. Can I just take the, you know, five grand or whatever it's going to cost you to do that this year? Because that would help me more than this. I mean, that's perception. That's not really the reality of the situation, but. Not only that, but then that also, that also, it's like a snowball effect, right? Like, oh, we can't pay you, but we are going to do what you just said, which I agree. Like there should be some type of concession and investment in the people, even if it can't be, straight up cash. But then that begs the the issue or that brings the issue about of, okay, we're going to develop you. We're going to upskill you. We're going to give you these opportunities, but PS, we're still not going to pay you more, even though you're now more qualified than you were a year ago, which can lead to feelings, justified feelings of that state entitlement that we talked about in the first episode. Oh yeah, definitely. This is definitely an area where that entitlement comes into play, particularly with companies like that. And also just ones that have layoffs in general, because people start to think that they're owed something, even if their coworker was laid off and they weren't, they still start to develop these feelings of entitlement. Like, okay, you messed things up for me and now you owe me something for that. Which is not to say that it's always, um, a valid point of view. It's just that people feel that way. Well, and sometimes it is valid. I mean, Natalie and I have been in a situation together, actually, where our career, well, actually, no, I'm going to take this a step farther and not talk about a specific situation. Natalie and I have both been in situations throughout our careers where one bad business decision or one bad seed, I will say, or a bad, not a bad seed, because I don't think all people like people are inherently bad, but has completely derailed our careers. And we've been in several positions over the course of our careers where it's like, oh my goodness, now we have to jumpstart all over again because we trusted the wrong person. Or we went down this path that was all great until this situation happened and then it was handled this way, which everybody has those situations, but then there's somewhere it's a little bit more dire and a little bit more like it hits you a lot harder. And it's almost like a wrecking ball that comes in and tries to completely derail your everything, your physical, your personal, like all of that. All of those situations have led me to this part of my career, which is focusing on people because coming from the strategic business side, 
I have an understanding of how all of that stuff works. And I've seen bad leadership and I've seen big leadership mistakes and I've seen people pivot on a dime and screw a bunch of people over, including myself um, unnecessarily. And that those were the scenarios that led me to want to focus on the people side because I understand the business side rather than just coming in from strictly a human resources perspective. I can look at the interaction between, you know, the strategy, leadership, management, and employee, um, experience and ability to accomplish their goals. So I'm in a way, all of those times that, bad things happened. I'm kind of grateful for because they've led me down this path, but yeah, it's, um, it, people sometimes make decisions without thinking of the impact, um, employees. So we kind of just like steamrolled right into career well-being. Um, Natalie, what did Gallup say career well-being is? You like what you do every day. You like what you do every day. I mean, I'm okay with it if we're thinking about like when we went back to the physical one, from a personal level, career well-being would be, I guess, what you like at the highest level. You like what you do every day. The, at the employer level, it becomes how do, how do you help the employee get to a place where they like what they do every day? Because all of those things that we're talking about detract from that, right? Ooh, question. Can you? Can you do that? Can you help the employee like what they do every day? Is that your responsibility as the employer? On some level it is. I mean, providing enough resources for them to do their job well, providing an environment that is conducive to doing good work, doing what they need to do, um, facilitating positive positivity, I guess, and being a transformational leader. Like there's a lot of things that you can do, um, but there are also a lot of people that just aren't going to like what they do because either they're not in the right role or they are just a negative person. Um, there are a lot of personal things that have probably more impact on not liking what you do every day than y- your company does. I think it goes back to that external internal thing. So what would you say is the difference then between or the relationship, I'm going to the relationship between or the difference between career well-being and employee satisfaction? Well, career well-being leads to employee satisfaction. They're two separate constructs. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why I was asking is what, what do you yeah. think the relationship between them is? And so you're saying career well-being leads to employee satisfaction. Is that the way it goes? Career well-being leads to employee satisfaction or could it be employee satisfaction leads to career well-being or is it chicken and egg? It might be a chicken and egg thing. It's not something that I've seen studied um, because there's a lot of like the way that well-being is incorporated into research is lumped with a bunch of other things things. Um, often, so like a lot of the stuff from Gallup or from other, um, consulting firms and stuff, that's where you get the, most of the well-being definitions and content. Um, but I mean, one of the outcomes of well-being in the workplace in general for all of these things is job satisfaction. So career well-being, you like what you do every day, but it's so much more than just that simple of you, you're a, like it's, we're saying that it's kind of like what we talked about in the emotional intelligence episode about job resources. I think it was episode one of emotional intelligence of like, you have the tools that you need to execute your position, which leads to, or maybe that was entitlement. I don't know. They all run together, but you have the tools you need to execute your position and you're capable of doing so. And therefore you can have higher job satisfaction and not feel quite so frustrated. Yeah. So if, I mean, overall well-being at work, those things contribute to overall well-being at work. So not just in the career sector. So if you look at what goes into the ability to perceive well-being at work, there's a scale. So the things that are, that come from the employer at the top, the things that employers can influence really come down to job demands versus job resources and how they offset each other. So job demands is vague because job demands can be anything from working long hours to having a difficult boss to 
not having enough training or things like that. And then the more resources you get, support, physical resources, whatever it is, kind of offsets the what the job demands take away. And that is part of the employer input into um, well-being. So we have career well-being, we have financial well-being, physical well-being. That's three out of five. What's the next one? The next one is social well-being. So the next ones are social and community. And these are two areas you and I have discussed uh, previously that I'm not sure where the boundaries are here with what should be expected of an employer. And there, there's a little bit in there where, where I might agree that the employer should contribute, but this is more of a gray area for me. Well, I particularly disagree with employers having a responsibility in the way that Gallup defines social well-being, which is you have meaningful friendships in your life. I don't think that that should be put on the employer to create. However, you can develop meaningful friendships at work and your company can facilitate, you know, getting to know people or give you ways to interact socially that might lead to friendships in your life, but they're not going to create that for you. And in my, where I do have a very strong opinion is that you, people are putting too much of that onus on employers and feeling like they're not satisfied in their regular work or in their regular day-to-day life. And somehow that's the fault of an employer. Yeah. Which goes back to placing too much, not necessarily value, but placing too much weight on expecting your work to be your community. And that's it. There is no other community outside of that or your, your social. Yeah. And people are definitely doing that. And I think the ones that complain about there not being enough opportunities at work sometimes are the ones that are generally more on the like neuroticism scale, just negativity in general, kind of wouldn't like the job anyway. Um, And then there are, of course, the super high extroversion people that just want to be connected and talk to people regularly. And that's still not really on, I mean, they should be in roles where they get to speak to people, but that's more focused on the job. That's not really focused on the social life and making friends. Well, and I think it definitely deserves to be said that it is not your employer's job to make you friends. Like you are there to like, this is a very unpopular opinion these days, but like when you go to work, you're there to do your job. You're not there to make friends. You're not there to hang out by the water cooler. Those are fun and cool benefits of going to work and interacting with people that you genuinely enjoy to being to genuinely enjoy being around. But that's not why you're getting paid. That's not why you are working for this company. You're there to do a job. And so if you're expecting that job to fulfill your social well-being and to cater to your social well-being, then that goes back to what we talked about in the last episode about you're placing burden and weight on a relationship that was never meant to fill that purpose. And so it's always going to disappoint you. It's always going to fail you. And if for some reason the employer did step up and say, okay, Joe, you want us to fulfill your social cup. You want us to, to feed your social well-being, your community well-being, and be the primary person responsible for that. I think that is a grave overstep of the company's position. And my personal opinion is it's not the best use of company resources, but I'm summarizing a lot of deeper, bigger conversations. But I agree particularly about the resources. And I don't think that it's even possible for them to facilitate. You can't, it's not a matchmaking service. Like you have to develop friendships particularly meaningful friendships on your own. That has to be something that you spend time, you put your own time and effort into. It just doesn't happen by sitting next to somebody or, you know, being on Zoom with them frequently. Which, I mean, don't get me wrong. I have had several just wonderful, deep, meaningful relationships. In fact, some of them are going to listen to this episode and know I'm talking about them that came from being coworkers first. Natalie and I were fortunate enough to be friends before we were ever colleagues. So our relationship has that benefit going for it. But you can't put that burden on 
the employer. Now, where I will say there is a difference or there is a line to be drawn is the first thing that comes to mind is a super dramatic example, but it'll get the point across of like a sweatshop, like working you to the bone, like you get punished if you don't, or or if you try to have conversation or like, you're not allowed to go to the bathroom, like a dramatic example like that, that does exist in the world, but obviously not necessarily to the people that are going to like we're talking to in this podcast. That example, okay, yeah, the employer, there, there is a responsibility for the employer there to not hinder or, or take away somebody's social well-being or pull from it, but it's not necessarily the employer's job to fill it. Does that make sense? Yeah, so your employer shouldn't detract from your ability to socialize and create meaningful friendships, but it's not their ability to create them either. Right, and that feeds right into community. Well, Gallup's definition is you like where you live. And to me, that I guess could be tied back to financial well-being, I mean, or location. But to me, that is really, you know, people spend their money on different things. Some people have a ton of money and they want to live in a tiny apartment. Some people have no money and they want to spend it all on a big house. Some people want to live in the country. Some people want to live in the city. I hear a lot of people complain about their commutes or used to at least. Um, And that to me was always an interesting one because, you know, you chose that job in that location. You could move if you wanted to, or maybe it's hard for you to move, but still, you know, that's not, the employer is not going to move because you don't like where they're located. See, that's interesting that that's the person, which to be clear, I don't know if we like clarified this or not. Gallup's definitions are not about well-being in the workplace. They're about general well-being for each of these things. We are talking about them as it relates to the workplace. But as far as the community goes, it's interesting that their take on it is all about location, whether it's your actual house or the town or the region of the country or whatever. Because my take on that was more, when I think community... I do think the surrounding area, but I think more the people involved in it and the lifestyle more than just the geographical location. Yeah. And I was originally thinking kind of your community at work and on the positive side, what employers can do is try to build a sense of community at work where people have projects that are, you know, cross departmental that, or a mission that they're all trying to accomplish together. That's outside of normal work. Um, but in general, I mean, I don't, in terms of community, whether that's the people that surround you in your life in general or where you live, that's not something that employers can really give you or should. Yeah. Because then anything that any way that an employer would impact that would be like you said, financial of like, oh, you want to be in this community, then that it becomes a financial well-being thing, not a an actual community thing. The one thing I will say though, that I can see how employers do impact community well-being for individuals is by way of grant programs, community outreach programs, stuff like that, that they sponsor and they partake in. So like like going back to Staples, when I worked there, we had, it was like one day a quarter. I want to say it might've been twice a year, but I really want to say it was once a quarter We had an expectation of going out into our community surrounding the office's location and participating in a service project. So for our office in Nashville, Tennessee, we would partner with organizations like Habitat for Humanity. And we would go and we would spend our entire work day building a house um, or partnering with the Boys and Girls Club or something like that to where we are investing in the community and Staples works to facilitate that, like to build that bridge and to help improve that overall community well-being in the places where the offices are located, which then in turn helps improve and grow the community well-being and the, the humans doing that as well. Yeah, that does create a sense of community, I think, um, between the people who are participating in it. Um, And then that's, again, voluntary. So, you know, the employer can't make you feel a sense of well-being in your community, but they can offer you an opportunity to develop 
if you choose the sense of community with those people. Hmm. Those are interesting definitions. I can see where Gallup's going with them. Of physical, you have the energy to get things done. Financial, you manage your money well. Career, you like what you do every day. Social, you have meaningful friendships in your life. And community, you like where you live. I can see where they're coming from with that. But I also like that we took the time to unpack them and relate them to the workplace because I think they go a step deeper and there's different, like we discussed, there's different lines in the sand that need to be drawn between the the burden of responsibility on the employer versus the employee. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And one thing I want to note too is that this isn't in the general definitions of well-being because most of them aren't talking about it in the same context we are. But there's also such a thing as the well-being of an organization, so the health of the company. And that is worth noting because everything that comes down from the company to the people we're talking about those kind of that well-being, what the employer can provide to the employees, but the employees contribute to the well-being of the overall organization. And that's something that I think gets lost a little bit today, just in terms of conceptualizing it, because you while while a lot of these things need to trickle down from leadership by setting an example, because ultimately if the organization isn't doing well then nobody has a job. And I think that that part gets lost in translation a little bit when we complain so much about the nominal things that are happening at our place of work um, and, you know, make these demands, extraneous demands and things like that, or have negative attitudes, you know, all things contribute to deterioration of the health of the company, which is the company's well-being. Now, that's a, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you made that distinction. Because there's a lot of people, like how many times have we all heard the well-being of the company? And it's like, no, it's the health. I, I like how you just broke that down. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about that. But yeah, because they do say well-being of an organization, but it is the health of the company. Totally. Well, I want to quickly talk about how well-being works from a psychology perspective. And I touched on this a few minutes ago, but the inputs to being well-being at work, there are some that are employer-based and some that are employee-based. The employer-based inputs, as I mentioned, are job demands and job resources. So very vague on both of those. We talked about some examples. Job demands take away from well-being and job resources put back in. Um, Another thing that takes away is doing work-related activities during non-work times. I'm not going to say that's true for everyone because there are some people who just like to hustle and work all the time and that are totally cool with that. So I think that's more personal, but for most people doing work during non-work times um, detracts from well-being. On a personal side, the individual inputs are um, negative affect or neuroticism, that sense that you know, everybody's out to get you or the world's a bad place that significantly detracts from your well-being. Um, heavy investment in work, like overinvestment or perception of overinvestment in your work takes away. Um, and then there are also demographic variables that are taken into account there. Um, things that also preclude well-being from the individual side are emotional intelligence and an optimistic outlook. So the opposite of neuroticism. Um, and self-efficacy. So I think self-efficacy is something that we don't talk about enough that contributes to just about everything in well-being and also all of the other things that we talk about, like entitlement and emotional intelligence is related to self-efficacy. But that's the belief that you can succeed, like the belief in yourself that you can succeed in a particular situation. So that plays a major role in how you think and feel and behave, which are all of the outputs that change your reality and not just in well-being that changes your whole reality. So what would you say some of the positive outcomes of well-being in the workplace are and just the general benefits of employers supporting their employees' well-being? Well, they're very well documented. So um, outcomes of well-being are greater physical and mental health, um, state well-being. So we've talked before about trait versus state. Um, This is a sense of well-being when you're at work. Um, Not necessarily something that you feel all the time, but it makes you feel 
a sense of well-being in the moment, um, and more motivation at work and better work performance. And like I said, those are actually very well documented um, throughout the literature that we've read, even though, as I mentioned before, they kind of lump them together with job satisfaction and things like that, but that's because they're all intertwined in some way. So um, that motivation and work and better work performance are the real business outcomes that you're looking for. And then uh, promoting greater physical and mental health and just feelings of well-being will contribute to better attitudes and appreciation and just overall positivity at work. So there's some things that you can do as an individual manager, even, you know, the higher level organization to promote well-being. And some of them might sound a little fluffy, but like this first one, but it's really not. So one of them is um, on the fluffier side, promoting gratitude practices. So this doesn't have to be wishy-washy or even spiritual. Just having what are you thankful for board or asking that question during meetings, um, asking your colleagues, you know, just promoting positivity through gratitude. Another major contributing factor is having transformational leader that encourages individual resilience. Transformational leaders create an environment of openness and trust. So that lowers barriers to asking for help and support. And they really try to make people feel like they're part of a team. Um, Transformational leaders also provide clarity in objectives. They take initiative to support people. They encourage creative thinking and flexibility to adjust, you know, when things are tough. So all of those things really contribute to well-being in many senses, maybe not in financial, um, but certainly in, you know, physical career development and even a little bit in that social and community area. Mm, Those are some really great action items. Thanks for breaking that down for us, Natalie. Guys, that's a wrap on well-being. Thank you so much for listening to the Head, the Heart, and the Briefcase. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Then stay tuned for next week where we continue to dive deep into more common workplace issues that leaders like you face every day. Thank you.